Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and that is page 716 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you this morning. Mark chapter 10. Um, if you're new or it's been a while, we've been working verse by verse through Mark's gospel. So this morning, here we are in the second part of this little section. We read the whole section beginning in verse 32 last time. I think I'll just read a portion of it this time, uh, enough to set the context. Mark chapter 10 there, beginning in verse 32. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is more than like this is the last week or near the last week of his life. He is leading the way, the disciples and the followers astounded, amazed, because everybody knows that a prophet goes to Jerusalem to die. So Jesus knows this, he's on his way to die. The reason why he's dying, we'll know in just a moment, if you don't know already. And so beginning in verse 35, that's the context, then James and John, after hearing about that, the sons of Zebedee came to him, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do? He asked, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can. They answered, let's leave it off there. And let's pray. God and Father, our times are in your hands. Therefore, the time set before us now is in your hands. And so we would ask you, God, in all humility and necessity, that you would grant the effectual work of the Holy Spirit be fully operational as Jesus Christ is preached this morning. Father, you know that so many of the larger themes of the gospel, that which makes the gospel so glorious and so humbling, they're in this text Please then, please, for your glory and for our good, set them before us in such a way that we might see Christ in his sacrifice, that we would see Christ in his redemptive work, that we would see Christ in his propitiation and the forgiveness he so graciously has secured for us. Let us see these things this morning, that we might praise your name properly, and that we would be given a fresh vision of Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended King. And then, Father, frame our life increasingly in the wonder of the gospel. We we need this this morning, Father. And so we're looking for you to have mercy on us. And for Jesus' sake, give us these things. Amen. Well, if you were with us last time, part of what we learned from these verses was the answer to two of the most important questions a person will ever ask. One, who is Jesus? Two, why did he come to earth? And answering the first question, who is Jesus, having to do with his identity, we learn, verse 33, you'll see this if your Bible is open, he is the son of man, that Jesus is God's promised king who has come into the world, all authority belongs to Jesus, he alone has defeated death, and therefore Jesus holds the future. That's who Jesus is. And answering the second question, why did he come to earth, having to do with his ministry, well, verse 34, he came to die. And three days later, rise from the dead. So near the last week of his life, verse 45, he said, for even the Son of Man, God's promised king in God's world, he came to give his life as a ransom. The price paid of a person's freedom, right? A ransom for many. Therefore, in verse 33, he says, here's the price. We're going to Jerusalem. 
I'll be condemned to death. Verse 34, many terrible things will happen. Mocked at, spat on, flogged, and killed. And three days later, rise. That's why Jesus came to earth, to give his life in that way as a ransom for many. We then learned that, and this was very important, that this was the third time that Jesus predicted his passion, his death, telling of it to his disciples. And the reason why that was important was because after he teaches them about his death and resurrection, he immediately sets himself to teach them how are they to live in light of his death and resurrection. Now that is fundamental because we are not clueless on how we are to live. We don't need secret messages from God on how we are to live. We don't need to wonder anymore how we are to live in light of the death of Jesus and in light of his resurrection. So, in chapter 8 and verse 31 and following, after his first passion prediction, in chapter 9, verses 31 and following, after his second passion prediction, and now here in chapter 10, verse 33, following his third passion prediction, Jesus' instruction on how to live in light of his death and resurrection are all the same. Tremendously straightforward, nothing confusing at all about it. It's a whole life from start to finish, of self-denial. It's a whole life in service to all. It's a whole life as a slave for all. A whole life willing to be last on earth and not insisting on putting ourselves forward. You can see that in the verses 42, 43 there. Not insisting on putting ourselves forward to be first. That's the way to live in light of the cross. A life lived for others for the sake of the gospel which is far more than just a moral life, right? Far more than a life, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to save my money right, and I'm going to raise my kids right, and I'm going to attend church right, and that'll do. That is not the abundant life that Jesus speaks of here. The abundant life is a continual bending, my whole life, for others, in or out of the church, in the name of Jesus, for the sake of his gospel advancement. And of course, as you can imagine, the reaction of the two disciples to his third prediction is just like the other two predictions. It's horrible. You see it there. Specifically, in the contrast between James and John, the sons of Jebedee, that begins in verse uh, 33 there, 35, excuse me, and Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. We said this last week, the contrast is irreconcilable. There's no way at all to merge these two ways of life together. One is the way of the world, verse 35. Get me what I want, Jesus. The other, the way of the cross. Our life is yours. Do with it as you please, verse 45. James and John wanted honor and power. Jesus will endure in humiliation and shame. James and John wanted to use Jesus' power to secure honor and power for themselves. Jesus will endure shame and humiliation using his power that he might secure salvation for them. James and John, they're hungry for control, for authority, status, a voice in the kingdom because of their seat. Jesus came to serve, surrender his life, making himself a ransom so that people could actually enter into the kingdom of God. James and John, comfort, security, Jesus suffering in death. James and John, I want to sit on the throne, shouting out commands. Jesus, I will hang on a cross, calling down forgiveness. So you see, you can't merge these two ways of life. 
On the one hand, honor, power, security, sitting on a throne. On the other, sacrifice, suffering, hanging on a cross. And again, there is an unavoidable opposition in these two paths. Two different kingdoms. Two distinct kingdoms with two different conclusions. And they cannot be merged. People have tried, but they fail. John Stott, on the request of these brothers, this is the most self-centered prayer ever prayed. At the worst possible time. Look at it, verse 35, right after Jesus speaks of his death, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And so in verse 38, Jesus, in his reply, again, straightforwardly, tells them, you don't know what you're asking. And then as his usual pattern, he responds to their question with a few questions of his own. Question number one, verse 38, can you drink the cup I drink? Question number two, same verse, can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now that's our task this morning. We're going to try to understand what Jesus is saying when he speaks of this cup and what he's saying when he speaks about this baptism. First of all, the cup. And if you have a worship folder, you can see, you can track right along with us. Now, It's important to remember that Jesus is using the language of metaphor. A metaphor is something regarded as representative or symbolic of something else. For example, all the world's a stage and each one plays a part. That's Shakespeare, right? Telling us the certainty of change. It's a reality. Or I'm drowning in, in a sea of grief, right? The sorrow, the grief is just too much for me. Each phrase, a symbol, representing something else. So this cup Jesus refers to is a metaphor, a symbol, which refers to the cup of God's wrath on sin. Now I want you to think with me. In the Old Testament, both individuals and kingdoms were forced to drink in measure the cup of God's wrath and God's judgment for their rejection of his will and his ways. Right? God said, do X. They did not do X. God was merciful. He said, come on, do X. They did not do X. Then eventually, wrath in portion was paid out. So the cup was a metaphor for how God punished sin. And that idea of sin has to be punished runs all the way through the Bible. The notion of, hey, somebody's got to pay for this. I mean, that's ingrained in our human psyche. Something goes wrong. Something happens bad, who's going to pay for that? It shows that we're made in the image of God. So, every sin committed came with a cost tied to it in the Old Testament. And so every sin which has ever been committed since then and forever and ever, if you would, came, will come with a penalty tied to it as well. Meaning, one, nobody gets away with anything. And two, all sin for all time was, and this is the metaphor that Jesus is laying down here, all sin for all time was being poured into a brim-filled cup, which Jesus is saying he's going to soon drink fully in his death on the cross. And it's very interesting that James and John's initial response to the cup question, right, can you guys drink this cup? Initially, it was like, bring it on. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can drink the cup. Just like the rich young ruler in the previous section, right? Uh, have you been keeping all the commands? Oh, yeah, I've been keeping the commands. It's a wee little, wee little boy. Easy. No problem. However, Jesus' initial response in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying to the Father about this cup, is what? Father, if you're willing, let the cup pass for me. In other words, don't bring it on. 
I'm not going to man up here, Jesus, or God. Not at first. Let it pass. Why? Well, when we speak of this cup, we are speaking here of God's righteous and settled fury on our rebellion and sin against him. So this is our lies, even the wee little ones. And this is our lust. And this is our lips when they go astray and the foolish thinking and the reckless living. There is from God in that every time, if you would, anger, wrath on those things. Because in our sin, we are writing off the fact that God has clearly spoken how we ought to live life and how we ought not to live life. And in response to that, listen to Sinclair Ferguson, the wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred in his activity against sin. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29, who expresses his wrath every day toward the wicked, Psalm 7, 11. God has hated wickedness, Psalm 45, 7. And his anger toward all that is opposing to his perfect character. He wills, therefore, to destroy, Psalm chapter 5, verse 6, sinners in the day of judgment. That's God's wrath. Again, his personal expression of opposition to what is wrong. God hates what is wrong. Deuteronomy 32. He's opposed to what is wrong for this reason. His character is being questioned when we do wrong. His mind, his will is being opposed when we do wrong. We're saying we know better than you, God, when we do wrong. Now, God does delay his full wrath. And this is part of how God reveals himself to creation. And this is part of how God reveals himself to the praise of his glory. For example, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. For the sake of my name, I will delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, right? For the sake of my glory, I will restrain it. When I read that section, I was thinking all the times in my life, my wicked life at times, how how I wasn't punished for doing some terrible things. However, in the cup Jesus will drink on the cross, there's nothing going to be restrained at all. There was no restraining the, the fury, the wrath of God on sin when Jesus was given that cup to drink and drank it. Consequently, this is a cup filled with God's wrath on sin, which is being poured out over God's Son who never sinned. That's number one. That's the cup. Secondly, in the baptism that Jesus speaks of. What's, what's that? Well, that's another metaphor. And in this case, God's wrath is being represented by water. Now, if you know your Bible, if you've read Genesis, that shouldn't surprise you, right? Chapter 6, Noah in the ark, flood comes. Jesus is going to be overwhelmed, metaphor, by the wrath of God. And this time it's pictured in water. And on the cross, he's going to drown in the wrath of God because of our sin. He'll never be able to hit the surface for air. Because of our sin. He is suffocating underwater. That's the picture that we should have for our sin. God's the one holding him down. He's going to die. Drowning in God's anger. Drowning in God's wrath because of our sin. Drowning to his death in the sea of God's wrath. A hurricane of punishment. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. God is doing in Christ what he said he would do. He's going to punish sin. 
Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Incidentally, and in passing, when you talk to people and they say, what's the deal with God in the Old Testament? Like people are dying everywhere. One of the things you should be able to say to them is, well, listen, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's number two, the baptism. Now, before we move along to our final point, can I ask you a question? Is that how we think about our sin? Or is our sin just an oops? Oops. Or your sin is, a, is, is barely, barely a sin. Or your sin is blamed on others. Parents, preacher, husband, wife, kids, people, boss. They drove me to it. They pushed me to it. Sinned. A nice lady a few months ago on the radio was telling the story of how God was making her marriage great again. And she was explaining her sin in one of her examples. And she said, well, it was just a small one. It wasn't like it hurt anyone. So I turned the radio down and I began to talk to her, as I usually do. And I said, yes, my dear, I understand that. But dear, in our sin, every sin, small ones, big ones, we go nose to nose with a holy God. And we say no to God. No to God. And there's nothing small about that. So Jesus is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath, and he's going to be overwhelmed in his baptism by God's wrath because of sin. Our sin. My sin. Your sin. And I want you to note this, because this is really important. Each question that Jesus asks, James and John, it's written in the Greek in a way it's called the present active indicative. Okay? That's super important. Because when Jesus says those things, what he's saying is this cup and this baptism, it's happening, happening to me right now in some way. Right? So he's speaking about these things and he's saying it's starting to build. The cup of my death, of God's fury, it's being filled and I can, can actually see it being filled. The water, if you would, is being filled. It's at my knees now and the pool can only hold so much and I'm watching it clock is ticking and I'm seeing and it's almost midnight if you like Jesus is saying my life right now guys is a live feed of the cup being filled and and the and the pool being filled I'm going to drown in the pool I'm going to die when the cup is drank just just look around right Look around, guys. This is part of the reason why God has wrath because you, many people hate me and people want me dead. And many people just follow me because of the miracles and the healing and the feedings, right? So my ministry to them is like a Las Vegas show and at the end you get a free meal. I'm harassed at every turn. My teaching constantly questioned. My motives constantly questioned. People think that uh, I'm in league with Satan And I'm the son of God, the son of man. And for all those sins, I'm preparing myself to be punished for them all. And they're not my sin. Also, you should know that as Jesus asked his first and second question to James and John, each question is framed in such a way that it anticipates a no reply. Can you guys drink the cup I drink? No. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? No. But you see it there, verse 39, they don't give a no. What do they give? They give a yes. Oh, we can do it. We can do it. A long time ago, I forced myself to memorize a poem, which I tried to recall, but I couldn't recall, but I knew the title. 
the title was, they said it could be done, but we did it. And so I used to tell myself these things before I would work on a project at home. And this is what I was, this is the last part. He, he started to sing as he tackled the thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. Now, that's cool when, you know, you're going to build a tree house or you're trying to fix the weed eater and your wife won't help you. That's cool. <laughs> but that's not going to work when there's a cup to be drank and there's a baptism to undergo. That's not going to work. These men are naive men. The best of men are men at best. This is human frailty. So when the boys answer yes to Jesus, it's obvious they don't understand a thing, do they? They can't drink of God's wrath. They, they can't be baptized in this way, in this sense, that this is unique and this is unrepeatable. This event, the cross, resurrection, unique and unrepeatable in the sense of Jesus. Because Jesus was going to drink the cup, and this is our third point, as propitiation for our sin. Jesus is going to be drowned in the ocean of God's wrath as propitiation for our sin. Holy cow, propitiation is a big word. I had to practice saying it a few times this week. What does propitiation mean? Well, propitiation is Jesus in his death, listen carefully, exhausting all the wrath of God on our sin if we're in Christ, right? Propitiation is Jesus exhausting the full wrath of God on our sin by his suffering and death on the cross. And we enjoy that as Christians. So, so God's wrath is not merely being deflected. It's not being soothed only. It's not being set aside, right, for a later date. It's being exhausted. Now, now, this may help you. Four illustrations. This is a person. Imagine a person filling up their lungs with air. And the air you take in is the wrath of God. And then there's that point where you exhale, exhale and you're just letting all the air out and you pass out. Okay, so all the air is gone. There's no more air left in here. It's gone. No more air ever again. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God on sin. Pretend like the Pacific Ocean has like a plug in the middle. And by the way, the Pacific Ocean has 187 quintillion gallons of water in it. 187,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,
Sorry about that, but that's what the T-Rex does. And I was watching the movie, and by the way, the kid next to me, he was having a whale of his time. He was like, oh, and his mother, she was like, oh. Anyway, and I was with people, so anyway, <laughs> had to make that clear. When the T-Rex stops, cut, no sequel, he's dead. It's done. No more ever again. That is in some way how glorious propitiation is. The full, unmitigated, held, nothing held back, fury and wrath of God being poured out on Jesus, and it's exhausted at the very moment of his death. Penalty fully paid. Wrath of God completely removed in Christ for his people. Forever and ever, world without end. Since power, gone. Since penalty, no longer hanging over our heads for people who come to Jesus in childlike faith and repentance. No more condemnation. No more guilty verdict. No more judgment from God because of our sin. All the wrath removed. God is satisfied. We sang it today. Nice job, worship team. Which means propitiation, listen carefully, is the winning of the favor of God, the averting and exhausting of the wrath of God, and the finished work of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his suffering and death on the cross. I'm going to say it again because it's so important, important. Propitiation is the winning of the favor of God, the averting and exhausting of the wrath of God, and the finished work of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his suffering and death on the cross. Is there something inside you right now that's going like, hallelujah? I can guarantee you, if you're in touch with your sin, there ought to be a little bit of something going on. Okay. What does that mean? Well, this means this. Listen carefully. We do not need to work to earn God's favor anymore. We do not need to work to earn God's favor, which is the opposite, and you know I'm going to say this. It's so much opposite of what sells in the name of Christian books and Christian media and Christian conferences and Christian sermons. And it makes me sick. Why would you diminish the cross this way? You do, you know, okay, you do this work. This is how it comes. You do this work, and you do that work. Okay, so you pray a little harder. You, you fast a little longer. You give a little larger, and oh, wow. Favor is just going to start rolling down on you. Don't you want to say, what is that? Don't you want to say Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians? Who has bewitched you? Who's cast that spell over you? You see, when those kind of things happen, they never finish it out. Because that kind of stuff feeds the flesh. Uh, this is, it. you'll be so awesome in the sight of others. Oh my, this is going to be great. You, you're going to, listen, if you do the things that I say for you to do, you're going to appear that your sin is no longer really an issue for you. Don't you want to, don't you want to look that way? And the cross, well, that's going to be for those dear people on the east side. You know, they can't control their finances and, and they kind of have trouble all the time in their life and they couldn't pull their life together like you pulled your life together, you know, awesome guy, awesome girl. And you know what? If you listen to us, you're never going to have any scars and you're not going to walk with a limp and it's just going to be beautiful. Jesus had scars. It doesn't matter. No scars. No limp. And you know what? You can finally speak like the champion that deep in your heart you know that you are. It's going to be great. What is that? Tim Keller, pastor 
If on any level I believe that through moral effort or zeal or spiritual disciplines I can secure God's favor for my life, earn his blessing, then my motivation for doing those things is some mixture of fear and pride. The fear is the desire to avoid punishment and get some leverage on God and get some leverage on others saying, I'm not like other men. I'm not like other people, Luke 18, but I'm just a cut above. The final analysis in that way is that all the good that I'm doing I'm doing ultimately for myself. Loved ones, please, good works are our privilege. It's our privilege. It is a work because we've been changed by God and we love God. And so our work for him is an expression of our love. However, our devotion and our labor cannot be for our promotion and his favor. Do you get that? Our devotion and our labor can never be for our promotion and and trying to earn his favor. Because if we do that, then we empty the cross of its power. Okay, how about the second statement, averting and exhausting the wrath of God? What is that? Well, that's basic Christianity, right? The right which God has had to pour out his wrath on us, to be angry with us in light of our sin, that has been averted. It has been completely exhausted, not because we're no longer sinning, but through the substitutionary. Get your big theology brain in your head. Substitutionary, atoning, effective death of Jesus. Substitution. In our place, condemned, he stands. He stood. Atonement. Christ exhausting God's wrath by his suffering and death on the cross. Effective. Producing its desired effect. Right? What was the desired effect? God's justice. Totally satisfied. God's love. Fully revealed. And we're no longer under any form of condemnation at all. Which means, this might be good news for you, God is not waiting for some future day to really, you know, lower the boom on you because of the sins you committed when you were 18 or 12 or 32 or 48 or whatever. Effective. No longer in bondage to sin. No longer subject to death. No longer alienated from God or from men and women. It is finished. So on those occasions where I am guilty of sin, my first instinct is not to make promises that I'll never sin again. But my first instinct should be to glory in the cross. Ask, receive, and listen carefully because I think a lion's share of us need to understand this and enjoy the forgiveness that God has freely given us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week when we said Paul from Romans 7, honest, middle-aged man, apostle of Jesus Christ, being totally honest about his life. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? What does Paul say? Thanks be to God who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's why Paul, when he speaks about himself, when he writes about himself, I'm the least of all saints, I'm the least of all apostles. I'm the worst of all sinners. And when he says that, he knows something's going to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be powerfully exalted in the life of Paul because they're going to look at Paul and go, oh. And they're going to look at Jesus and go, wow. That's what Paul wants. That's what every good, mature Christian wants. Remember when we sang the song last week, Hallelujah for the Cross? What good I've done could never save my debt too great for deeds to pay, but God, my Savior, made a way. Hallelujah for the cross. Remember that song? Friday morning, 
a song popped in my head. It's the anti-version of that song. Can I give it to you? Right? This is the antichrist version of that song. Sorry, but this is what I was doing. This is what I was saying. If I think I'm pretty great, songs like that will barely take. And I'll, steep, I'll still keep with attack and hate. Hallelujah. Because I'm so great. See the difference? See the difference? In Christ alone, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin was laid on him here in the death of Christ. We live. Now, loved ones, that has to mean something, right? It has to mean something to you. It has to mean something to your kids, your grandkids. It has to mean something to your spouse. It has to mean something to your Christian friends. It has to mean something. So as Christians, we may have trouble making a a personal application of propitiation in our lives. So we're like in a perpetual state of gloom. How's it going? Or, you know, we might try to have some like future gloom that we're trying to plan for so we don't enjoy the cross. Or we're like, well, this is what's wrong in my life today. And it's always, there's nothing ever good. It's like always something bad. That might be us. Or we may find ourselves as easy prey for the evil one and evil people who who condemn us. And we're kind of like their personal and perpetual punching bag. Or you may be in the chair this morning, and I hope this is not true of any of us here, but you're sitting in the chair and you're totally unimpressed by Jesus' death. You're like, man, when are you going to be done? So you have a small view of sin and you have no working view of propitiation. The best you can do is, well, it's God's job to forgive. And after all, it's me. That's what he does. He forgives. And it's me. I got some help for you. If you're unimpressed with Jesus, and you have like a small view of sin, no view of atonement, I want you to listen to the words of him. Verse 3, stricken, smitten, smitten, stricken, and afflicted. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. And what he's doing, he's like, look at the cross. Think through the cross. All the spitting and the mocking that led up to the cross and all the brutal punishment that was on the cross and the things that Jesus said. Look at that. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of God, son of man. You see, that's the glory of the cross. The justice of God fully, fully reconciled uh, the mercy of God fully reconciled wrath love given absolute full expression the wrath of God full expression the love of God full expression and we don't pay any of our debt because of our sin that ought to produce gratitude it ought to produce some humility a few words about Jesus in the public square that seems highly appropriate to me how about you now, let's say it's the other, and you find yourself easy prey for the evil one and evil people, and they're perpetually condemning you, right? Personal and perpetual punching bag. Because it's easy to find sin in people, right? It's easy, right? I got another oldie. It's not a song. It's a quote from Augustine, 1,600 years ago. Listen to what he says. It's so profound. Without God, humanity is as prey in the worst possible way, which is the assessment of others, and the communal and continual judgments men and women render on each other. God can be a terrible judge, but at least he's the only one and he's just. With men and women, 
I must deal with a multiform elusive judge whose sentencing can strike me at any moment without my being able to answer. Now what he's saying is this. People have a standard. Sometimes we don't know what that standard is. And their standard's always changing. And sometimes people are judging us by their standard and their standard's always changing. How can we stand? How can we stand? Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ risen. Jesus Christ ascended. Don't try to defend yourself because some of what they say is probably true. You look to the cross. You glory in the cross. You put no confidence in your flesh and you recognize that the one, the one who is completely qualified to make a final judgment on you will not. Why not? Because Jesus stands in God's presence on our behalf and he says, Father, okay, your law demands a payment. We know that. The wages of sin is death. We know that. But you know I paid it for them. And since I have paid that man's sins, since I've paid that woman's sins, I ask you to decide as you should. They're, they're not guilty. They're acquitted. Because if you punish that person, then you're going to get two payments. And you'll be saying that mine wasn't enough. And we both know it is. Now, I want you to listen to me. If you're in Christ, what I just said is true. If the person next to you is in Christ, that's true. If the person you're looking at right now, if he's in Christ, that's true. And if all the people that I'm looking at right now, if they're in Christ, then that's true. So, loved ones, because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we could become the righteousness of God, let's treat each other like people who are righteous, not because they're righteous but they're righteous in Christ. And if it's working right that way, I promise you it's going to be working right this way. If you want a homework assignment, go read through the epistles, all the moral instruction. Almost every time Paul says be good, his final reason for being good, in fact, it's his only reason for the sake of Christ. Because Christ died for you. Be good. So Jesus, as our substitute, he asked God for justice, and he got it. God got justice at the cross, and we have justice in Christ, if you would. Now, we can't overlook, and we're just about done. There's two things that happen. The brothers, too, they say, you know what, Jesus, we can drink the cup, and we can endure the baptism. Jesus says in verse 39, you will drink the cup, and you'll be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. So what's he saying? Well, he's not saying that you're going to atone for anyone's sin. What he's saying is this. James would be beheaded by Herod Antipas because of the gospel. John lived, will live in lonely exile on the island of Patmos because of the gospel. And the Bible's not shy about that. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, Christian, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. 2 Timothy 3.12, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not like your AC going out. No, you're going to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Romans 8, 17, we share in his sufferings in order that we will share in his glory. And we ought to count suffering as a privilege. Acts chapter 5, verse 24, the apostles left the Sanhedrin after that beatdown, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. And we should count this suffering as a privilege and not as a nuisance. So, okay, we all know we want to feel good. 
and things to go good all the time. But suffering is a part of life. And a certain kind of suffering, that is a part of a healthy Christian life. And as soon as we forget that, as soon as we try to cut ourselves off from that, we abandon the ability for good decision-making and we become more like a citizen of the world and less like a citizen of heaven. Let me close with this. Theologians say there's two theologies working all the time. There's a theology of glory and theology of the cross. Theology of glory, it's just using God's truth for our personal gain. Theology of the cross, it's bowing down to Jesus and actually saying, my life is yours. Take, do, as you will. And then Jesus softly says, okay, I want you to read uh, Mark chapter 10. I want you to read around verse 38, 9, 40. And I want you to start doing those things with the power that I give you. That's the theology of the cross. You don't need any spiritual power to do the theology of glory. You just have to be human for that. But you need spiritual power. You need a conversion, a real conversion to enjoy the theology of the cross. Okay, last time we ended this way. Will you let Jesus Christ serve you? Remember that question? Will you let his death make everything proper between you and between God and between others? And if you've done that, Praise God. If you've never done that, the opportunity is before you right now. Jesus is here, and he wants to talk to you and say, I want to tell you about my death and how, how it was a privilege to serve you in that way so that you could be part of my family and never know condemnation from God ever again. Do you enjoy the gospel Do you apply the gospel in your daily life? Let's pray. Thank you for your wonderful attention this morning. God and Father, our hearts and our minds are continually laid before you. No one has any secrets, God, with you. And if we are in Christ, then we have no wrath on us either. Just under the full impression that that needs to happen. People in our congregation, myself included, we need to understand that. We need to understand propitiation and make application. Please help us and grant by the power of the Holy Spirit we may more perfectly love you and love others and more perfectly heart in, magnify your name here and out there for Jesus' sake. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Peace. For Jesus' sake. Amen.